Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Isaiah 53. Actually, we are going to go to three passages today, so you might want to get them ready. Isaiah 53, and then Matthew chapter 8, and Acts chapter 8 as well. Isaiah 53, uh, Matthew 8, and Acts 8, but we'll start on Isaiah 53. We're beginning an Advent series entitled, Waiting for the Messiah, and and each of the sessions will ask a question, and that is, today's question is, how will He help us? And here's the key concept for today. He suffers so that we don't have to. As we begin this Advent season, we're talking about Jesus' suffering. It's, a, it's appropriate. This is a communion uh, Sunday, but it's a little bit off-putting because as we enter Advent, usually our minds go towards all kinds of happy things. The beauty of the baby Jesus, the, the imagery of angels and shepherds and those kinds of things. We think of children dressing up in their bathrobes and getting ready for their pageants. These are the fun things as we think about Advent But in order to really understand the Messiah, we need to understand more than just the baby Jesus. We need to comprehend the full-grown, grown-up version and understand that all all that He did for us. And the prophet Isaiah, more than 750 years prior to his birth in Bethlehem, foretold what He would do. And he recognized that some of what Jesus would do would include suffering. The Messiah had to suffer. But you need to understand that that was not clear at Jesus' birth and still not clear for many today. In a moment, I'm going to show you a video. The video is a series of brief interviews on the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, An individual who is a believer in Jesus Christ is uh, uh, in Jerusalem reading, uh, having people read from Isaiah 53. And the reason he's doing that is because Isaiah 53 is not a passage that is used in synagogue worship, and it is not a passage that most Jews, you'll see even Orthodox Jews, have ever even heard of. And we we need to begin there so that we can understand what's lacking and where we need to what we need to get hold of. So first, let's watch the video. These are interviews in on the city streets of Jerusalem. There's some Hebrew, but you'll get it. <laughs> 
וכמסתר פנים ממנו נבזה ולא חשבנוהו. הוא היה בזוי ודחוי על ידי בני אדם, איש שידע כאבים ומחלות, הוא היה כמו אדם שמסתירים ממנו את הפנים, בזוי וחסר ערך בעינינו. שזה מדבר העניין הזה על, על המשיח. אדם ש... כמו שכתוב, בזוי ודחוי על ידי החברה. העם שלנו היה משוכנע שהוא שלילי. לא יודע למה. לא קיבלו אותו. דחו אותו. לא חשבנו שהוא היה המשיח. כל אויינו הוא נשא ומכאובנו סבלה. ואנחנו חשבנו הוא נגוע. הוא כאלוהים מעונה. אכן, הוא נשא את המחלות שלנו, סבל את הכאבים שלנו, ואנחנו התייחסנו אליו כמו אל חולה במחלה קשה, שאלוהים גרמנו להיות מושפל ומעונה. הוא לקח את כל הכאב, את כל הסבל ואת כל המחלות עליו, ובכל זאת, יענו, דחו אותו. הוא עשה לנו טוב ובעצם נתנו לו רע בחזרה. הוא סובל בגללנו, בגלל כל ה... בעצם העבירות שאנחנו עושים, אז הוא סובל את הכאב הזה. הוא נתן לנו מעצמו, הוא סבל בשבילנו, הוא לקח את המחלות שלנו, את כל החטאים שלנו. מעוצר וממשפט, לוקח את דורו, מי ישוחח, כי נגזר מארץ חיים, מפשע עמי, נגע למו. ויתן את רשעים קברו, ואת עשיר במותיו, הלא חמס עשה, ולא מרמה בפיו. בפסוק 12 כתוב, תחת אשר הארה למוות נפשו. מה התוצאה של הסבל שלו בסופו של דבר? הוא מת. הוא ימות. עם עשירים. איזה כיף. אני גם רוצה. אז קיצר האשימו אותו על דברים שהוא לא עשה, וקיבל על זה. מעניין. הוא מת, אבל לא מוות עם כבוד. קודם כל, האם זה משהו ששמעת על המשיח, שכל הדברים האלה אמורים לקרות לו? לא. זה לא. יש גם את התיאור הזה, לא רק בפסוקים אלה, אבל גם בסחריה, בדניאל, במקומות אחרים. וגם הרבנים העתיקים הבינו שהמשיח אמור לסבול. והוא מחולל מפשענו, מדוכא מעוונותינו, מוסר שלומנו עליו, ובחבורתו נרפא לנו. כולנו כצאן טעינו, איש לדרכו פנינו, והשם הפגיע בו את עוון כולנו. אבל הוא נפצע בגלל הפשעים שלנו, בגלל החטאים שלנו, הוא הושפע, נענש כדי שלנו יהיה שלום. בזכות הפצע שלו נרפאנו. כולנו עבדנו כמו צאן, כל אחד מאיתנו פנה לדרכו, אבל אדוני הטיל את האחריות על החטאים של כולנו. הבנתי, על פי הפסוקים, כאילו, הוא יספוג את החולי והרוע שלנו, וזה ירפא אותנו, והוא בעצם יהיה בן אדם שנענש, שהוא ייקח על עצמו את כל ה... אוקיי. ייקח את כל העוונות שלנו, ואת כל המכאובים, ואת כל מה שעבד. הוא לקח על עצמו את הכל. שכל החטאים וכל הדברים הרעים וכל העונש הכבד, אלוהים כאילו הכניס את זה באדם אחד. So for many of the Jews, almost universally, they have no knowledge of the passage that we're going to look at today. No understanding that the death of Jesus Christ was specifically predicted 755 years prior to when it occurred. But we can read it. So let's do that. Isaiah 53. Verse 3, starting, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. 
But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah said that approximately 755 years prior to the crucifixion. Imagine if I said to you right now, I can predict something that's going to happen 755 years from now. If I tried, you'd probably think I was crazy, or you should think I'm very full of myself, because who would be around to see whether it came true or not? Yet that's exactly what Isaiah is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah predicts that the Messiah will suffer in the place of human beings, and in that suffering, the justice of God will be satisfied. This passage in ancient times was seen as a prophecy that pertained to the Messiah. But somewhere along the line, over time, the rabbis started teaching that it's not about the Messiah at all, but it's rather about the nation of Israel, not any one person. And for centuries since that time, it's not been a part of rabbinical readings. And so, you see the result. Jewish people don't know the prediction of the Messiah. One modern-day rabbi puts it this way, Isaiah 53 bears no relationship to any of the chapters in the Pentateuch and is unrelated to any holiday or historical circumstance on the Jewish calendar. He goes on to say that there's actually quite a few passages that aren't read in the synagogue worship, and that all of this was decided before the New Testament era, which is true. But I would argue this. There is a great correspondence between this passage and Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter 3 is where sin enters the human experience, and Isaiah 53 tells us how God plans to deal with sin. And it shows us explicitly that He will take the guilt and the punishment of that sin on Himself. The cumulative effect of leaving this off of the reading, as you see in the video, the average Jewish person, even the Orthodox Jew, has no idea about this prophecy. In his book, the case for Christ, Lee Strobel interviewed a man who, had, who had, was grown, uh, raised Jewish. His name was Louis Lapides, and he attended a Hebrew school. His parents and his family were very devout, but in the area in which he lived, he had a lot of Catholic friends. And he would go over to their homes to play, and oft times he would uh, go into the house and he'd see the crucifix there on the wall. And he didn't think much of it, the strange things that the Catholics have in their house. Well, eventually, Louis Lapides went to fight the Vietnam War. And when he came back, he had lost his faith completely. He had lost all interest in spiritual things, and he dove deeply into the drug culture. But there was a spiritual void inside of him. And so even while he was in the drug culture, he started to experiment with all kinds of different religions even Satanism at one point, trying to fill the void that he felt. And one day, as he was walking in the streets of Los Angeles, he heard street evangelists on the Sunset Strip. He started to argue with them, really, challenging them about what they were saying. And they, at one point, took him aside, and they talked to him, and they finally said, learning that he had a Jewish background, they finally said, why don't you read the Old Testament prophecies of the, of the Messiah and compare those prophecies to the life of Jesus of Nazareth? They gave him a Bible so that he could do that, a Christian Bible. Well, 
He left that conversation intrigued, but not interested at all in reading the New Testament. He, he had too much of his Jewish heritage in him to want to open a New Testament, but he was willing to turn to what that book called the Old Testament, he called the Scriptures, and begin to look back at those messianic prophecies he used to know as a kid. So he read through those prophecies. He read through that Old Testament. And finally, he was stunned to come to Isaiah 53. And he realized as he was reading those words that the words of the prophet Isaiah exactly depicted the crucifix scene that he had seen on the walls of his Catholic friends many years ago. Here's what he first thought. He first thought that this is a fraud. This is a fake. After all, he's reading this in a Christian Bible. He says the Christians must have inserted this in the Old Testament to make the New Testament look true. And so he wrote his mother back east, and she, he said, will you please send me my old copy of the Scriptures? I want to see if, if this is really in there. And that's just what she did. But after he read his uh, Old Testament, in, uh, what was his Scriptures, he saw it was exactly there, just like it was in the Christian Bible, word for word. And with that, he decided to look at Jesus. And he began to read the New Testament. He began to read the Gospels, and he saw the fulfillment, not only of this prophecy, but of many messianic prophecies, and he turned to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and the one true Messiah. And when that book was written, The Case for Christ, uh, Louis Lapides was a Christian pastor in Sherman Oaks, California, because he met the Messiah, and he, understand, he understood what he would do. He would suffer for us. The prophet is speaking about Jesus of Nazareth. There's another man in Scripture who actually reads that exact same passage, and it's a, he's, we meet him in Acts chapter 8. Don't turn there yet because we're going to get there in a few moments. But in that scene, uh, this Ethiopian man who is a eunuch is returning from worship in Jerusalem, and he's riding in a caravan in his chariot, and as he's riding, he's reading out loud the words that we just read and Philip the evangelist is walking along that same road, and the Ethiopian calls out to him in this way, Acts 8.35, and says, Who, who's he, uh, the prophet talking about? And it's 8.35, it says, Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. 750 years prior, or 55 years prior, Isaiah wrote the words, and there the Ethiopian could discover it's all about Jesus, showing what the Messiah would do. And he showed us that he would suffer. But more than just suffer, he would suffer in a way that we did not comprehend or understand. Look at verse 3 in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom we hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Twice in that verse, the word despised is used. That's a strong word. I don't think I've ever said it about any person. I despise them. I can dislike somebody. I, maybe I'm mad at something that somebody, someone has done, and maybe I'm not wanting to be with them for a period of time or something, but to despise someone. It's, Webster defines it as to regard as beneath notice. The Hebrew word is translated as to hold in contempt. That's the way humanity felt towards Jesus. 
And it shocks me because Jesus loves the, one, the ones that despise Him. He's suffering for the ones that are openly saying that He is beneath contempt. And even while He's loving them, they thought that He was to be shunned. They thought He was a God-forsaken criminal. We misunderstood Him completely, but yet He loved us still and suffered for us. He suffered as our substitute. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds, we have been healed. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul picks up that theme. He says, for, <coughs> for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What, what, he, what it means is, in accordance with the Scriptures, in all that the Scriptures had, have, have been saying, it all pointed to Jesus. Though the animal sacrifice wasn't the end of the story, it did give us a picture that there was sin that needed to be reckoned with, and it demonstrated to us the seriousness of sin, that punishment was coming. It also demonstrated to us that a substitute could be made, could take on that punishment, but that was a weak substitute. The real substitute would be not a lamb, but the Lamb of God. God always has understood that only Himself could bear the wrath of His own justice so that we could be forgiven. It's all there in verse 5. There was a purpose for it all. And so Jesus endured that suffering for us all so that we don't get the affliction, so that we don't get the piercing, so that we don't experience the sorrow or the punishment. But what we do receive for those who say yes is peace and healing. And all of this is for sheep that go astray. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I was trying to keep that image in my mind this week of a straying sheep. How does that happen? A straying sheep is a sheep that has left the shepherd's care, a sheep that has wandered away from the safety of the flock. A straying sheep is placing itself in great harm and, and, and risk, and they always stray Seeking greener pastures, don't they? Sheep do not go out looking for adventure. No sheep decides, I'm going to go where no sheep has gone before and somehow explore the world. No. There are no superhero sheep who are going out there to take on the wolves to protect the flock. What happens is they stray nibble by nibble, seeking the next small satisfaction the next thing that they can consume. Each nibble takes them a little farther away from the shepherd. What an apt picture of us as we wander away from the Lord. For it's usually about consumption. I want a little more of this. Maybe I should try this over here. Oh, if that looks good, I'll try that. And nibble by nibble by nibble, we're soon nibbling ourselves away from the fellowship of the shepherd. Of the shepherd. And Jesus suffered to bring that kind of wanderer back. And His suffering is something that we really can't comprehend. We try to describe it. The gospel authors try to picture it. In fact, really, sometimes they give up. You know, there's a word that has been invented simply because of the kind of suffering that Jesus underwent. It's the word excruciating. 
You might use that in everyday speech, but in reality, it's a specialized word. It comes from the Latin word cruciare, which means to crucify. That suffering was so great that they created a word column, a whole category of how to describe that, excruciating. And what will this suffering accomplish? Verse 5 says, by His wounds we are healed. Here's where some controversy comes in, actually. Here's where some different opinions and thought in terms of interpretation comes in. Is the atonement work, does that give us spiritual healing? Or does it give us physical healing? Or does it give us both? The fact is, it gives us both. But we need to interpret the word wisely and understand how it works. And in order to see that in place, I want you to turn to our second passage today, Matthew chapter 8. For we gain not only spiritual healing, but physical healing as well because of Christ's work. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. I'll set the scene for you. It's this taking place in Capernaum. Jesus has come back to his home, his home office or hometown, so to speak, and pick up the reading. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. The gospel writer Matthew connects Jesus' healing ministry, physical healing ministry, with what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 53. So Matthew is saying that both forgiveness and physical healing go together in the work of Christ on the cross. And that should not be a surprise, right? Because all of our suffering, all of our sickness, it's all because we live in a fallen world and we are fallen people. And what Jesus does on the cross is reverse that work and He reverses it totally. Spiritual death and physical disease are both born of sin. Jesus is the solution. But here's the thing. If you think that that means that a person who knows Jesus Christ, if they have enough faith and they pray hard enough, God is obligated to take away their cancer, or God is obligated to, re, uh, to take away that diabetes, or if I just pray hard enough and have enough faith, God is going to clear my acne. Think again, because here's where some of our interpreters go off the rails. This is what I mean. On a spiritual level, due to Christ's work on the cross, by faith, I know I am bound for heaven, but I am not in heaven yet. Some of what Jesus has earned for me on the cross has yet to come to pass in its fulfillment completely, in its entirety. I am saved. I'm saved today, but I'm not yet glorified, and I'm not in glory. Just like I cannot claim the perfect experience of heaven yet here and now, in the same way I cannot claim the perfect physical healing that Jesus worked on the cross here and now. It awaits me in glory, you as well, but the culmination is not yet. It's going to come later. 
We do not have the ultimate end of our salvation. We are not right now already living in glory. We are on the way if we know Jesus. So right now, we cannot demand, based on Jesus' work on the cross, that He heals us. We can beg that He heals us because of His mercy. We can ask that He heals us because of His sovereign will. And when we pray for healing, and it is right to pray, when we ask for healing, and it is right to ask, we always pray those prayers with a heart of submission because what we want most of all is the will of God for our lives. So yes, spiritual and physical healing are provided, and they both will be perfectly experienced in the ultimate culmination that is ours in heaven. And it's all because of mercy. And there's one more passage in Scripture where Isaiah 53 and the mercy there is demonstrated. And that is in Acts chapter 8. So we're going to go there real quick. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. And I'm going to return to that story of that Ethiopian who was coming back from Jerusalem after worshiping in the temple. That Ethiopian was a Jew now, either by conversion or maybe he was born. There was a large Jewish population in Ethiopia at the time, and he has gone to the temple to worship. He's a a person of some stature in the Ethiopian government, and let's find verse 28. It says, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Hold that thought and turn to verse 34. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. What I want you to see is that's the very first time in the Bible that Isaiah 53 is specifically mentioned as pointing to Jesus of Nazareth. But it always was. And, And Philip explained that. And that Ethiopian trusted Christ as his Savior, was baptized, and these two who were so different in who they were in life became brothers in Christ in that moment. Philip is there to guide him. Actually, that man's travel all the way from Ethiopia was all about that short conversation because he was meant to be changed, and love changes everything. Self-sacrificing love changes everything, and that's just what you have in Jesus. What was the Messiah to do? He was to suffer so that you don't have to. He took our place, and what we receive is mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you always had mercy in mind. Sometimes it's hard for us to forgive. It's hard for us to get to mercy. Recognize, we recognize, Lord, that we're called to be Christ-like in the way that we live, so help us to be mercy givers even as we have been mercy receivers. And thank you that you've always had this in mind. This was always the plan. 755 years before you were born, Isaiah saw it because you spoke to him, and we want to remember it as you speak to us, praying all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to leave this place. Maybe you're in a situation in your life in which you need prayer. Something's going on, an issue or a decision. I want to invite you to come and meet the prayer counselors next to the organ. They pray for people after every service, okay? But before you slip up and do that, let's all stand together for a closing prayer.
And before we close in prayer, let's sing about mercy. Do you remember the chorus to the hymn at Calvary? A few. Okay. Well, you can sing it. We'll sing it through and you'll learn it. Ready? It goes like this. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Now that you have it, once again. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Lord, dismiss us with the truth of those words ringing in our ears. We have mercy and we have grace and we found it at Calvary. Help us to represent you well, we pray. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming.